So I have uh, shared a lot over the years about my upbringing, that I'm a boy from Cleveland, Ohio. Those are my origins. But I also have shared with you that I am from a long line of Hanyaks. I don't know if you've ever heard of the term. Jerry, you know the word Hanyak. Very few people do. My dad was, I would say, one of the most notable of the week's branch of indigenous Ohio Hanyaks. What is a Hanyak, you might ask? I've come up with a definitive uh, answer for that. It's taken me a long time, but a Hanyak is a person who is unpretentious in their sloppy and uncouth habits. Some people call them urban hillbillies who do not pay much attention to accepted standards of behavior around them. But they're kind-hearted and caring. So I know the definition doesn't work, so let me just give you an illustration to help you understand what a Hanyak is. When it comes to home repair, car maintenance, and even outdoor construction projects, my dad carried around his own personal toolkit. It did not contain what normal toolkits do. It doesn't have the newest socket set or an impact wrench or even a craftsman hammer. No, my, my dad's toolkit included three wonder products created just for Hanyaks. Here's his Hanyak toolkit. Bondo, duct tape, and tons of wood shims. They come very handy. If our car had a dent or rust, we would not spend our hard-earned money at the local auto body shop. My dad would grab a glob of Bondo out of that nuclear-resistant can and just apply it to the side of the car. It hardened like that. Sand it down a little bit. It's just like new. Well, new in the sense of getting new socks and new underwear as a hand-me-down from your older brother. You know, my dad needed to fix a lawn chair. You know, broke on the on the leg or secure a piece of metal fence that was hanging down one part of the yard. Repair the sole on my Converse All Stars. Retach an outdoor light. Stop a leak in the toilet or or stick a hyperactive grandkid to the wall. Duct tape works every time. <laughs> and if you had squeaky floors, leaning doors, just put as many wood shims in there that you can, and it will take care of it. The Hanyak's code is simple. Here it is. The quicker and easier you get a job done, the better. The quicker and the easier you get a job done, the better. And he did that so he could go back out and Go to the barbecue and make more brats. You know how that is. Well, the problem is my oldest sister, Tam, married a man by the name of Jim Lee Watts. Jim Lee Watts was an accomplished master carpenter. He was such a good builder that his home reconstruction project appeared in Better Homes and Gardens. He took his little cottage, took the roof off, and expanded it into a five-bedroom dream house. It was incredible. He was meticulous. He knew how to build things the right way. He used the best materials, and he was a measure thrice, not twice kind of guy before you cut, if you know what I mean. One time, Jim was fixing a house for some family friends, and my dad and I came along to help. He figured we knew what we were doing, so he assigned us to a room with a bad door and some other troubling things. I, quite, I don't remember what it was, but definitely it took real skill in carpentry to fix it. But my dad and I didn't care. We didn't need skill in carpentry. We had his toolkit. So we used shims on the door. We used duct tape all over the place. And we were done in no time. Like no time. Jim, his mouth fell to the floor and we said, we're done. He goes, you guys are done already? We said, yeah, we got that done. 
He went in and he looked at it. He was not pleased. He was not pleased. He said, rip it down and I will do it tonight. I do not need your help anymore. As we were driving home, he looked at my dad and I goes, you guys are a bunch of Hanya. Your repairs may work for a short time, he said. And listen close. Your repairs may work for a short time, but soon everything you did will fall apart and the problem will be worse than when you started. If you're going to do a job, do it right. No cutting corners with Jim. When he did a job, it was good. Really good. And when it came to working with him, no Anyak repairs allowed. In fact, I really never did carpentry with him again. Whenever I went on a job, he gave me a shovel and he said, dig some holes. All right. All right. But I want to use this story as an illustration to talk about God's amazing work as compared to man's silly experiment. And I'm not going to talk about building things with wood or metal or drywall or bolt. I'm going to be talking about building things with human beings, specifically marriages and families. And when it comes to marriage and family, he designed something that is really, really good. And so the title of this is, this is God's great idea. This is God's idea. And he doesn't like it to be messed with. Tragically, the world is treating God's idea like a Hanyak does with projects. They want quick and easy solutions. Do it their own way. Maybe put a little bit of duct tape here. Try something else here. The problem is real marriage takes a lifetime of patience, hard work, suffering. So chapter 19 at the very beginning begins in verses 1 and 2. Jesus is on his way to Judea. He crossed the border the border, and he's going to Jerusalem, and he's basically set his face like flint to the city of Jerusalem to come and die. He's nearing the end. People are crowding still around him. They want to hear him. They want to see a miracle, maybe touch him. But there's also people who hate him. I mean, hate him. The jealousy and anger of the scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees are reaching a fever pitch at this point, and they want to ruin his ministry. They want to take him down. So if you notice in verse 3, look how verse 3 reads. It says, and Pharisees came up to him and tested him. They tested him. They really wanted to destroy him with questions. But I want you to see that the group of people that are asking him this question about divorce are not really caring about divorce. They don't really care about what God thinks about marriage. All they want to do is trap him and make him look bad. That's their idea. That's their intent. And actually, when you talk to people about marriage and divorce, often they just want to know, is there a loophole to get out of this thing? I don't want to hear about the design and stuff. Is there a way to get out Actually, the way that the world treats Christians is just like this. They, people who are against the Christian way of life will often use these kind of questions, accusatory, testing questions, not to find answers, but to make a believer look foolish for standing on conviction. 
antagonists of the gospel, think that by simply asking a hard question, if I can ask you a tough question, I've discredited God and Jesus. In this case, the Pharisees were just trying to discredit Jesus by asking him a question, no matter how he answered it, somebody was going to get mad. You'll see that in a second. They're kind of asking him a question like this. You've probably heard this. If I ask you the question, when did you stop beating your wife, no matter how you answer that question, you're wrong. It's kind of like that. If you say, well, I, I stopped beating her a couple, well, wait a minute. You know, it's meant to trap you. So in this, there was two groups that were either going to be happy with his answer or mad. You have one group called the scribe of Hillel. This rabbi named Hillel, he taught that you could divorce your wife for any reason. Any reason. If she burnt the toast, she made you upset. That's grounds for divorce. Out of here. Today we call that no-fault divorce. If you went out, get divorce papers, and voila, Nolan Boyd. The other group is called the Shammai Rabbi group. They taught that the only grounds for divorce was promiscuity or adultery. But other than that, divorce was never permitted. There's no way out. You can't get out. So you could say sounds a lot like our modern church world. There's two groups. Some churches play fast and loose when it comes to divorce and remarriage. You want out? No problem. No problem. Just get it done. Other churches demand a person stay in a marriage no matter what. You made the choice. It's your fault. Even if it's a living hell, you stay in it and you deal with it. So there's two groups. The point of this is that no matter how Jesus answered, one of these groups was going to hate him and go, aha, I knew it, and get mad at him. That's the point. But Jesus doesn't take the bait. He doesn't. You notice in verse 4, before Jesus answers the question, he goes after the root issue. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So he's, he's asking this question. It's kind of a rhetorical question, but it's a question to reveal motives. It's a question that says, why are you asking this? And we need to really stop on this a second, this have you not read. I think this is, might be the most important part of this message. They have a duplicitous heart. They really don't care about what Jesus or God even said. All they care about is trapping Jesus. But he wants to talk about the goodness of it, the goodness of marriage, the design. And so this phrase, have you not read, is actually attacking their sincerity. And his, he's asking basically this, does God's opinion even matter to you anymore? Do you care about the way he's designed the world? And secondly, is and, and do you think his designs are good, or do you think you know better than him? Do you think you have better ideas than him? Do you think duct tape and Bondo work better than doing it the hard way? To me, this is such a relevant question for our time, because I'm not sure people take care about God's opinion anymore, especially with people who claim to be part of the Christian church. Look how people treat marriage, family, sexuality. It's like, it's like just trying to do whatever comes easy now. Forget treating it with heaviness, gravitas, dignity. We now have couples like Will and Jada Smith who celebrate open marriages. Their kids are polyamorous couples. See, you can do whatever you want. 
We can play around with having multiple relationships with more than one partner. Why not? Why not? And now even we live in a culture where a gay and lesbian couple seems more moral and wholesome than any heterosexual couple. That's how it's portrayed. Relationships and commitments now are played fast and loose because it's all about personal likes, preferences, embracing differences, celebrating creativity. And by creativity, we now must let everybody determine their own truth as they want, as they determine is true. There's no right way to build a house anymore, in other words. And for that marriage, for that matter, for no right way to have a marriage, however you want. Because there's no definite biological boundaries anymore, our ingenuity and exper experimentation with hormone therapy, plastic surgery, cosmetics, it's given us a new power to do what we want. No, that's just Bondo and duct tape, that's all. Really. Like my brother-in-law said about a bad construction, it may work for a short time, but soon everything you did will fall apart and the problem will be worse than when you started. And I'm telling you, we're seeing that across the board in our society. Experimentation is going bad. Really bad. Just on a side note, I want you to think about this a second. What does it mean, what does it mean to love someone when it comes to having a conversation with them. How do I love someone in conversation? I think love takes what another person says, takes it very seriously. It listens to them and tries to understand. If I say I love my wife, but I don't really care about what she says or I ignore what she just told me and do things my own way, you would say I'm a callous jerk of a husband because I really don't care. Now apply that to those who say they love God. But they could care less about his opinion on marriage and sexuality. Sure, I love God, but that doesn't mean I have to listen to him or do what he says. There's a lot of Christians like that out there that are actually very spiritually callous. So what does Jesus say? What does he say? So he's going to talk about marriage first as God's great I'm going to say good design is great design. And I'm using great because we interpret good differently, and I'll talk about that in a second. So when it comes to marriage, first thing Jesus does in verse 4 is he appeals to the original creation. Look what he says. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning? He's referring back to the book of Genesis. He created them and made them male and female. This is God's great idea. This is his idea to make humanity flourish. This idea of marriage. What was the world like before sin cracked and changed it? What was God's original design before man messed it up with their wacky and perverse ideas? It was good. In fact, if you go back to Genesis 1.31, after he made the world, including marriage... He looked at everything he made, and he said it was good. And we need to understand this word. Because good, in biblical sense, relates to shalom, the Jewish word shalom. God's good is not like our good. When we say something is good, we usually mean, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, 
It's all right. It's all right. But when God uses the word good, he's talking about perfection, beauty, blessing, and joy all rolled into one. We call that shalom. So let me explain shalom. First I'm going to explain shalom for men, and then I'll explain shalom for women to help you understand shalom. Okay, men, shalom, here's what shalom is. Shalom is when you purchase that giant four-wheel off-road vehicle, a Jeep or a large cab truck. You bring it to the Silver Lake sand dunes, and you roll it off the back of your trailer in the parking lot. And then you open up the hood, and everyone with tattoos comes over to look inside the hood. And when you rev the engine, they say, dude, that's shalom. That's shalom. So for women, do you know what shalom is? It's when you have three or four of your best friends over for a ladies' night out. Your husband's out with the kids, and he takes them to two movies. You have gone to Pinterest to find out how to decorate the dining room with mason jars and eucalyptic leaves. The pasta you just cooked comes out steaming and supple. It's perfect. The sauce is not too clumpy or watery, but just right. You ladle it over top of the noodles, and next to the entree is some crisp green broccoli and a perfect slice of tiramisu dessert served on the side while you have a great discussion about your kids, dating years, and your favorite essential oil fragrance. All the while you're sipping your favorite beverage. I won't say what it is. It's up to you. That's your shalom. Understand? It's when everything is just right. God's design not only works, but it's right, and it's good, and it's beautiful, and it's blessed, and it's pure, and it's noble with no guilt, no embarrassment. This blessing lasts from generation to generation if it's done right. People come over to your house, they'll watch you and they'll wonder, how did you get to be so blessed? Because it's the way it's meant to be. It's a created order. And that's what good means. The tragedy is, it takes real sacrifice to achieve this, and people would rather use duct tape. So what are the elements in the design? It's very simple, actually. It's very clear. I don't know if it could be more simple. Look at verse 7. Verse 6. So they are no longer... Uh, let's go 5. And said, therefore... Jesus writes. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So here are the elements. Very simple. Male and female. So it's a man with XY chromosomes and a woman with XX chromosomes. They commit and they promise before God to join their lives together. That's called a covenant. No one else is included. That's the design. Say any questions? Seems pretty simple. Jesus, that's Jesus' word. It's kind of funny. People say, Jesus... You know, he never talks about homosexuality. He is right here in the opposite way. You know, the whole Bible talks about it all the time. Do you ever notice most people in the Bible are a man and a wife, like 100% of the time? That's his design. 
And don't apply any Bondo and duct tape to it. It only ruins and destroys and spoils. Jesus bases his answer from Genesis 2, 20 and 25. Listen to the, how the NLT puts it. It's beautiful. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper who's just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, This one is bone of, from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. What's the goal? Jesus says in verse 6, so they are no longer two, but one. No longer two, but one. So oneness is the goal. And he ends by saying, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. King James says, let no man tear asunder. Two will be one. So you could say, it begins in verse 5, oneness is achieved by leaving your father and mother. So you leave, you separate, you separate from that world, and you cleave. Basically the word cleave means to bond like a metal weld. The weld, after you bond the metal, is stronger than the metal pieces apart. So you are to leave and cleave to your spouse. The two will become one flesh. Oneness has three parts. We talked about it in both of these Genesis things. Oneness emotionally. It's not good for a man to be alone. Oneness physically, they were naked and not ashamed. And also, in the most important part, oneness spiritually. Together, they display the image of the living God. Listen to Genesis 1, 26 and 27. It's very clear. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry across the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. The image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. As a result of this design from God, you must not break the part. Let no man separate it. The casualties from easy divorce and divorce in general, I would say, are legendary. They're legendary. Often when a couple wants to get a divorce, I've got a book of what you're going to cause to happen. And I have them read it. When you violate a warning, it results in untold harm. And if you doubt me, find someone who has ever been divorced, they'll tell you. They'll tell you. And if you've ever been divorced, you really should become the greatest advocate for Jesus' warning here. Well, the first group, Shimei's group, probably really liked this. Like, I like him. But that made the other side mad, the ones who like easy divorce. And so they asked, well, what about Moses, man? He gave this thing called a writ of divorce. Look at verse 7. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce? To send her away. They pounced on Jesus because they were setting him up. But wait a second, wait a second. Look what they say again in verse 7. Why then did Moses command one to get a certificate of divorce? 
that what Moses did? Look what Jesus says in verse 8. He said to them, because of your hard hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. So basically, Jesus is saying Moses allowed it or permitted it. He didn't command it. He didn't command it. Moses didn't say, yeah, if you don't like her, just write up a quick certificate of divorce. Send her away if she displeases you. You just, you don't need to put up with her. So he commanded, no, he didn't command it, Jesus says. Verse 8 says, because of, or as a result of brokenness, festering sin, selfishness, human cruelty, one towards another, God allowed or permitted divorce. And then look what he says. But from the beginning, in verse 8, but from the beginning it was not so. Some but he puts it like this, some commentator. Jesus is rescuing Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 from misuse. That's Moses' writing on the writ of divorce. He's rescuing it from misuse. It was not meant to provide a positive basis for easy divorce, but only a troubleshooting provision in case things went wrong. Moses came up with a certificate of divorce as a last result. Some marriages, because of unrepentant sin, because one spouse is cruel. In fact, did you know just because somebody, what I've, what I've learned over the years, especially dealing with a lot of really difficult marriages, just because somebody says they're Christian, it doesn't mean they are one. Some people are so cruel that they turn their marriage into a quiet killing field in a soul-destroying relationship. I've seen people, both men and, women, men and women, shrivel up because they're part of a toxic, destructive marriage. Jesus actually gives a reason for Moses' law of divorce in verse 9. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immoralities, the Greek word porneia, or really unfaithful wickedness, unfaithful wickedness, and marries another, commits adultery. A partner who is determined not to be faithful, Jesus says, we, we say it like this, who has a cheating heart, can't stop the game of pursuing someone else. Moses says, I have a way of getting out of being constantly hurt, destroyed, embarrassed, and being taken advantage of. It's called a writ of divorce. Some other sinful results have come from unfaithfulness. Some pastors will say abandonment is unfaithfulness. And so is abuse, physical and some forms of mental abuse. But I'm not here to give talk about loopholes right now, but those are some of the three A's to bond-breaking behavior. So in other words, Jesus is saying that our job is not to look for loopholes, how to get out of marriage. Jesus is wanting the institution of marriage to be brought back up to the original luster it was first intended to be. Something beautiful. Something good. Divorce is a horrible catastrophe. And it is not meant to be an easy option when things get hard. You can look at it like this. I, when people find, let's say, first settlers come into a land and they want to find a community or city, do you think it was the intent of those people who first founded the city to build jails and prisons? Do you think like they started a city and said, now we can build jails and prisons? Yes! 
No, it's only as a last resort. It's only as a solution to a massive problem. People in the community don't just say, oh, I can either be a good citizen or I can live in jail for us, my life. Great deal. You don't say that. Jail's a last option. So is divorce. So this then will be listened to by different groups of people in different ways. And those who have gotten a divorce or who are in the middle of one or feel the pain of it, they're probably asking this question. Have they committed the unforgivable sin? So tell me, Pastor, can I legally get a divorce and everything will be all right? Or am I condemned forever in the eyes of God? There are usually two ways to address the person who has had a divorce or is contemplating divorce. You have the Haleo group of supporters. The Haleo group of supporters are those friends and even some people who want to give you the easy way out. They see your pain and they say, hey, just cut, run, get out of there, ask for forgiveness later, no big deal. You deserve to be happy, so be happy. Then you have the Shammai group. This group loves to wield this power of shame, blame. I'd never do that. Excluding and heaping guilt and conviction on the sinning parties. And they have a subtle way of saying, yeah, 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 you, I guess you can come to church, but we're the true Christians, those who stay married. So why don't you just go sit in the back row with sackcloth and ashes? That's the Shammai group. As a pastor, though, I have one job. My job is not to legitimize a divorce, nor is it to keep someone in suspended animation locked in a prison. It is to tell you the truth of God's wonderful design for marriage. And then, when things turn south, point you to Jesus when things come crumbling in because of sin. So for those of you who have been divorced, have you honestly gone to Jesus and talked to him? Have you sought forgiveness from him? And from those you've hurt, have you repented? And to see how Jesus handles divorce, and to see how Jesus handles just brokenness, because sin be destroyed, to see how he handles the stain of a broken relationship, and all that accompanies it, I suggest you read an incredible story about a woman at a well in John chapter 4. It's incredible. He meets this lady, Samaritan woman at a well. And this lady had five husbands and was living with one at the time she met Jesus. He knew it. You know what he did? He offered her living water of the Holy Spirit through faith. She admitted her sin. And then, and then, she went and told the whole village how she found the Messiah. And many came to Christ because she was overwhelmed by grace. So if you're divorced, here's my advice. Get right with Jesus. And then go change the world. His grace is incredible. Tell people about it. So one last thing, often the discussion ends here. But the disciples take Jesus seriously with what he's saying, and look at their response in verse 10. 
the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man and his wife, meaning, man, you got to stay together for the, till you die? Wow, so that, that's pretty serious. Only those, uh, better not to get married, maybe. Saying, we, I shouldn't get married. And Jesus basically surprised them and said, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. Look what he says in verse 11 and 12. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying about staying single, but only those to whom it's given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. So a eunuch is somebody who abstains from sexual relationships. Some from birth. What he means by that is probably some from birth defects. They're not able to. There are eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by men. In the ancient times, let's say a king had a harem of women. Some men who were servants of the king would be castrated so they wouldn't have the temptation to sleep with the ladies in a harem so they could take care of them. That's a eunuch by men. And then it says, for the, some who have made themselves eunuch for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, let the one who is able to receive this receive it. So some people have decided to remain celibate and single their whole life for the sake of God. They're given that gift. Even Paul writes about it in the book of Corinthians. He says, I'd like you to be free from concern about marriage. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her reign is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. So what both Paul and Jesus are saying is that singleness is also a very good thing. It is. So those of you who are single... If you have ever felt unwanted in our church or felt second-class citizens because you're not married, on behalf of the church, I'm sorry. You shouldn't feel that way. You are some of the greatest gifts given to the church. The problem is, over the years, the church, we got to get past the idea that a married person is a whole person and a single person is half a person. No, Jesus says here, singleness is very good. It's good. In fact, it's a gift. And if you've been given that gift, don't be ashamed, but serve God in gladness. And in some sense, if you're single, you, you really, I'm telling you, you got it good. <laughs> so we need as a church to encourage singles by by pointing them to what Jesus says. You're good. It's good. So in conclusion, marriage, according to Jesus, is simple in design. Very simple. A man and a woman covenanting together for life. But it's sacred in practice. God calls a man and a woman to make this covenant until death. It takes sacrifice, selflessness, and forgiveness. But it brings untold blessing. This is God's great idea. It is right. And it's good. 
Or you could say it like this. In other words, when it comes to marriage, stop trying to use Bondo and duct tape. It does not hold. It doesn't hold. I just want to say something on the sidelines. because Tuesday we're going to have a lot more time to talk about this, but it's, uh, it's going to be the memorial service of our great friend Mark Lindsay. And I was thinking about him and his wife, Dusty, talking about marriage. And I'll tell you what. I have never seen a woman love their husband like Dusty's love, Mark. Never. I've never seen the benefits of marriage in the way that Mark has from a woman who's been faithful and has stepped with him through the valleys every single day. Marriage is a gift. If you do it right, there's nothing better. 